We're continuing with our hits from the 1980s this morning as we continue to have some fun sojourning here in the gym where our church started in 1980 to 1981. My daughter Lily asked me this week, she said, aren't we really just playing that music because you like it because it's old music and, and you're an old person so we're playing old person's music? And, and my reply to her was, uh, no, my dear. Every one of those songs has been picked with absolute theological precision to perfectly conform to the biblical text that we're investigating that morning. But she looked at me with one of those eyebrow looks. So, yeah. so we, we just listened to Depeche Mode, and I confess I, I do have quite a bit of vinyl still um, from Depeche Mode. This song asks the question, people are people, so why should it be that you and I should get along so awfully? It's a good question, but it's a question you're going to answer differently depending on how you view people and human nature. I'm guessing that when Depeche Mode say that people are people, they mean that people are just people. We're basically good. They mean that people are going to be all right as long as we try a little bit harder to get along together. And then they sing, I can't understand what makes a man hate another man. Well, the book of Genesis was written to help us understand just that. And chapter three is where we start to see how it all went sideways. Up until now, we've watched as God created the world and gave it order and it was good even very good. He also created us in his image, we read. So we reflect his nature and we're designed to worship him and to enjoy him forever. But first, he loved us. He enjoyed us. And this is the basis for so much. Everyone is loved and recognized by God. Everyone has equal worth in his sight. But there's more. We're not just created to worship, but also to to cultivate the world and for community. God tells us to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth. In Genesis 2, God says to humankind, take care of the garden. And so we're stewards of the world. God gave us work to do. And God made us male and female also. It's not good for us to be alone. We're created for relationship, for community, with God, with each other. All that we've covered to date. Today we're going to see a development that changes everything. God had told them, Adam and Eve, that they were free. But he established a limit also. He said they were free to eat from any tree in the garden, but not from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And that's where we pick up the story. Let's pray before we open our Bibles. Holy Spirit, we ask you to come and show us Jesus today. Lord, we, we believe that we're not just reading from an ancient book, but we believe this is the word of God, that it's active, living, and true. It pierces us. It changes us. 
It exposes truth about us. It helps us. It encourages us. It corrects us. It shapes us. We're coming from all kinds of different circumstances. Confusion in many cases. Would you shed your light into our lives and into our life together as your church at Courtright? Holy Spirit, would you hover over us today and do your work of bringing us to Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. So we're going to read Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, uh, Well, uh, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman, the woman you put here with me, she, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. This is the word of the Lord. What is wrong with the world? How would you answer that question? In 1910, a British newspaper, the Times of London, invited a group of prominent thinkers and authors, intellectuals, public figures of that society to answer the question, what is wrong with the world, by writing a letter, really writing an essay, a letter of a thousand words or less. What is wrong with the world? One respondent, one prominent writer in England at the time, replied with the shortest letter of them all. G.K. Chesterton wrote, Dear Sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. I am what's wrong with the world. You don't hear that too often, do you? Certainly not in election season. 
Most of us, I think, have a real sense that something is not right with the world. But we'd rather point the finger elsewhere. We'd rather not explain that problem with reference to ourselves. Maybe if you were writing an essay in answer to that question, what's wrong with the world, you would attribute it to a lack of education or to poverty. Or if you lean left politically, you might blame the conservatives. Or if you lean right politically, you might blame the liberals. Maybe you think what's wrong with the world is due to a decline in moral values. Or maybe you see religion itself as the problem. No matter what your explanation might be, I think we all realize that it's not just external factors, that there's a problem in our hearts as well. So how do we understand that? How do we answer this question Depeche Mode asks in their song, People Are People? Today we're going to do that by talking about sin. It's not a popular topic. I recently heard from someone who's new to our congregation, and they commented on the prayer of confession, which we pray every Sunday. We prayed it earlier between a couple of songs. To them, that prayer seemed like a big downer. It was negative not uplifting the way church should be, it made them uncomfortable. And I tried to explain the prayer of confession by describing that moment in our worship services as kind of like a reality check, something we all need. But I get it. We don't like to talk about sin. We'd much rather talk about hope, victory, love, grace, Sometimes people, instead of talking about sin, will talk about the things they've done wrong as mistakes. You ever heard this? People do something quite wrong and they are willing to say they made a mistake. So the corrupt politician caught in fraud calls it a mistake. The unfaithful spouse admits that he or she made a few mistakes. But is that really adequate as a word, as a way to describe this? I don't think so. A mistake is when you allow the Boston Bruins to score in the last minute of a masterful first period, which should have ended with the Leafs up to nothing. Or if you're not a hockey fan, a mistake is when you forget to pay your credit card bill on time. Because let's face it, sometimes we make mistakes on purpose, don't we? We plan our mistakes. What would you call that? Someone who carries out a mistake consistently over time and lies about it. A serial mistaker, perhaps? I think the Bible gives us a more adequate word. And that word is sin. It also gives us a fuller explanation for what's wrong with the world using this concept of sin. The Bible says that there's a sickness that has infected every one of us. And Genesis 3 is ground zero for the disease. And so we see, and we're going to go through this passage verse by verse, we see this crafty serpent sidle up to Eve and ask, did did God really say that thing about the tree? This is how it begins. In the previous chapter, God was always referred to by his personal covenant name. Even at the beginning of chapter 3, he is too. Yahweh is that name, translated as Lord God. 
It's a name that points to a relationship that we can have with God, a closeness with God. But here, when the serpent starts talking about God, it's back to the generic God in Hebrew, Elohim. The serpent doesn't deny God's existence. No, he wants to have a reasonable theological discussion. He speaks of God as though God is distant, a concept. He's planting seeds of doubt. He's asking, are you sure about God? Maybe he isn't so good to you after all. At that point, Eve could just have said no and walked away. After all, the answer to the serpent's question was no. The serpent had twisted what God really said. God said they were free to eat. It was language of blessing, language of abundance. But the serpent turned it upside down and made it sound prohibitive, restrictive, narrow. But Eve chooses to get into it with the serpent instead. And she actually forgets what God really said. God never said not to touch the tree, among a couple other things she gets wrong. In its history, the church has always seen the serpent as the devil, the father of lies. He twists the truth. He cannot create anything. But he whispers lies to us and we fall for them. And in verse 4, the serpent tells an outright lie. He says, you will not certainly die. Your eyes will be opened. He's really saying there that God, if you obey him, will keep you down. God doesn't want you to be free. God doesn't want you to have broad horizons. If you obey God, you will miss out. You will not enjoy life. So Satan doesn't deny God's existence or power or truth. He denies the goodness of God. He says, you can't trust God. You're going to have to take things into your own hands to make this work. And that lie went straight into our hearts. You know what it's doing there? A lot. A lot of mischief. Why is it we say, I know the Bible says I shouldn't have sex with this person I'm not married to, but I really want to. Or I know the Bible says I shouldn't spend all my money on myself, but, you know, I need that money. I've got expenses, I've got a lot of stuff I want to buy. Or I know the Bible says I shouldn't hold a grudge against this person and seek revenge, but it feels so good. I want it so badly. And so you're tempted. But you wouldn't be tempted unless at a deeper level you didn't already distrust God. Your heart is saying, if you obey, you won't be happy. And so Satan has destroyed our trust in the love of God. And that underlies every other problem that we face. When the woman saw that the fruit was good, she took some. She gave it to Adam and he ate it. So what ruined us then? Eating fruit from that tree? How? What was the big deal with the tree? Well, here's why it was such a big deal. God could have laid out the consequences for Eve and for Adam. He could have showed up right then and there and put the serpent in its place. He could have explained, if you eat from this tree, there will be something called the fall. There will be untold suffering and misery and death. And I think Adam and Eve would have gone, 
Okay, never mind. There's another tree. There's peaches over there. That'll work for us. But God didn't do that because if he'd explained it that way, Adam and Eve would have obeyed him out of self-interest. Instead, God was saying to them, I want you to live as though the world is a gift and as though your lives are the gifts they are to you, not yours, but given to you by me. And I want you to trust me as God. Or... What's the alternative? You can put yourself in the place of God and act as if your life is yours and the world is yours to make of it what you will. The serpent knows that and the serpent says, if you eat the fruit, you will be like God. Behind all the limits God gives us, behind God's law, is the principle that God is God and that you are not. Virtually everything that's wrong with this world is us putting ourselves in the place of God. Sometimes this is obvious. Murder is taking life that God has given. But what about something more every day? What about your anxiety? Maybe I'll just speak for myself here. I get anxious. I worry about how my life is going to turn out. I have an idea of what my life should be, what my family should look like, where my kids should end up, how the church has to go. And I'm afraid that God, God who created the universe, God who is in control of history, won't get it right. That's where my anxiety comes from. Can you relate to that? And so this is the sin behind every other sin in our lives. Because of simply mistrust, we put ourselves in the place of God and we get worried. We become anxious. How do I deal with worry? There's a Christian discipline for that. There's a way the church has nurtured over the centuries for that. It's called confession. And so we can choose to admit that we don't know. We don't know what's right for us. We don't know how our lives will end up. Only God knows. And we can take ourselves out of that seat, the place of God, But by tomorrow, I don't know about you, but I'll be right back in it. And so we pray that prayer of confession. When the leader from the worship team prays it, we lean into that because it's actually a prayer of liberation. It's a prayer that recognizes the truth. And we work this out in community. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer the last two chapters of his amazing little book, Life Together, talk about confession and how, as a church, it can't just be about whoever's praying the prayer of confession up here. But we must move closer to each other, take the risks that are involved, 
with breaking up this spectator scenario we have on a Sunday morning and heading out into our individual lives during the week and meeting with each other and being honest with each other about our struggles, about our doubts. That is confession face-to-face. I hope you have a relationship with at least one Christian friend whom you can go to and say, I made a mistake, I have sinned against God and against whoever in my life. Because when we confess that to other people, when we admit our mistakes, you don't have to use that kind of language. I confess that I have sinned necessarily. But when we're honest with each other about these things, the Holy Spirit rushes in. The Holy Spirit does his work of restoration, of forgiveness, of healing. And the church begins to breathe. The church accepts the new life that we have in Christ. The real problem with sin is that we lose our relationship with God and we lose ourselves. I love the way this video illustrates that. John, what are you eating? You didn't eat anything. John, look at mommy. Anything. Are you telling me the truth? You didn't have any snacks? Nope. Let me see. You didn't have any snacks. Open wide, let me see. Really? You didn't have any snacks. John, come here. John, can you explain to me why why the sprinkles are empty? Well, you're not empty. John, look at me. You're not empty. Did you eat those sprinkles? No. I did not. You know, it's not nice to tell stories and to lie, right? Look at Mommy. You're not supposed to lie. Tell me now. Did you eat those sprinkles? No. I did not. John, mm-hmm. you have sprinkles on your face. Isn't that kid the most adorable little ball of sin you've ever seen in your life? It's truly incredible that total depravity can come in such an irresistibly cute package, but it does. This kid is so insistent that he did not eat the sprinkles, he may even believe it himself. But the mom really could care less about the sprinkles. She just wants her kid to admit what has happened, to confess. And he knows his mom is getting angry, but he's obstinate, even after she points out that the sprinkles are all over his face. He refuses to own up to the truth of what he's done. But his mom knows that he needs to live in the truth. Did you notice at the end how he starts to back away a little bit? I think he's about to make a run for it. He knows where to hide. How will it end? We don't get to find out. But we do in Genesis 3 and throughout the Bible. 
Because after Adam and Eve eat the fruit, everything changes in an instant. In verse 8, God comes walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The Hebrew word for walking there signifies more than just moving your legs in a certain direction. Its real meaning is that God was looking for them. He wanted to be in relationship with them. He wanted a friendship with them. And we hid. Sin dislocates us. It ruptures our relationship with God. All of a sudden, we know we're naked. The harmony of Eden is gone. If you're naked, you're vulnerable and insecure, right? And you're going to run and hide. And so Adam and Eve hid behind the trees, which has to be one of the funniest scenes in the Bible. You can imagine them whispering to each other, he'll never find us in these trees. Sure, he spoke the whole universe into existence, but we've got a really good spot here, and we're going to be fine. I can remember playing hide-and-seek with my kids when they were younger, and one of them would hide their head under a pillow, but the rest of their body would be sticking out. And I'd call out, Lily, are you in your bedroom? And she'd reply, no, I'm not in here, Daddy. (laughs) Now, that's cute. But when we hide from God, it's more like tragic. Because not only does it fail to actually work, but it robs us of the good purpose he created us for, which again is to worship him, to glorify him, and to enjoy him forever. We hide from God as adults, too. We do that by downplaying our sin, by rationalizing things, by justifying ourselves. We say, I'm a pretty good person, at least compared to other people. Or maybe we just refuse to think about it. It's possible to fill our lives with so much noise that we don't ever have to be silent. We dull our senses like that and in other ways, with alcohol, with food, with pleasures that were made to be good, but which we use to create distance between us and God. And most of all, I think we blame others. The man said, the woman, it was the woman, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And then when God asked the woman, what is this you have done? She replies, the serpent deceived me and I ate. They're all pointing to others and we do too when we search for explanations for what has gone wrong in our lives. My parents didn't support me. My friends abandoned me. I was under a lot of stress. It was my wife's fault. My husband was emotionally unavailable. It's not us. It's always other people. And we hide behind fig leaves too. Religion is a great way to do that, actually. I'll behave well and I'll go to church. And everything will be fine. But we can be just as dishonest with God and with ourselves in that respectable kind of place too. And so this story is our story. We have rebelled against God. Sinning is running from God who wants a relationship with us. We are hiders. We hide from ourselves. We hide from others. But most of all, we hide from God because in the presence of God, we see what we don't want to see. We're hiding. We're running from the truth, from God, from each other, 
from our very selves. But what's so remarkable about about this is that when we hide, God always seeks. It's our nature to hide. God's nature is to seek us. God asks, where are you? Does he need to ask that? Does he need to find out? No, of course not. He knows exactly where they are. But as he calls out to them, he's seeking them. He's making it known. He's reaching out. We hide and God seeks. If we ever find God, it's only because he first found us. And most of all, we find this in Jesus. God's going out in love, which is in God's nature, finds its ultimate expression in Jesus Christ. Jesus, who gives us hope for the sickness of our self-centered hearts. Because Jesus and Jesus alone undid what the serpent started. Think about that tree with me for a minute. Jesus struggled over a command about a tree also. Adam and Eve were in that bright sunny garden and God said, obey me about the tree and you'll live. They didn't. Jesus was in another garden, a different kind of garden, a dark and terrible place. And God said, obey me about the tree and you will be crushed. And he did. He obeyed God for us. He climbed the tree of death, the cross we call it, and he turned it into a tree of life for you and for me. And that is the reversal of the original sin. Original sin is us human beings putting ourselves in the place of God. But salvation comes when God puts himself where we deserve to be and takes the consequences of our sin for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This is what it means to be a Christian. It's not trying harder to be good. It's not doing good deeds. No, it's admitting the sin in your heart and asking God to forgive you. Thanks to what Jesus did at the cross. And then it's trusting the Holy Spirit to seal that grace and truth on your heart so that you can love and serve others even as you're still struggling to trust God. Let Jesus deal with your fear, your anxiety, and your shame. Let him clothe you with his love. Accept the truth of what he has done. Believe in him and walk with him into the freedom he so longs for you to have as you live in his love, in his will, in his grace. And all God's people said, Amen.